Hello and welcome to the World Economic Forum in Geneva, Switzerland. I'm Adrian Monk and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Great Reset Dialogue on harnessing the fourth industrial revolution. Delighted to be joined today by Ivan Duquet, President of Colombia, by Paul Kagame, the President of Rwanda, by Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, also joining us, Daniela Stoffel, the State Secretary of International Finance in Switzerland, James Laurie, President and CEO, Stanley Black & Decker, Nadaf Safria, CEO and co-founder of Israeli tech startup Team 8, uh, by Marietta Shaka, Director of Stanford Cyber Policy Center, and by Jason Kelly, CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks. And to chair this conversation, I'm joined in the studio here in Geneva by Burger Brenda, the president of the World Economic Forum. Burger. Thank you, Adrian. And um, I agree we have a, like an incredible uh, distinguished uh, panel uh, this uh, time uh, to discuss uh, these really, really uh, pressing uh, issues uh, related uh, to uh, the fourth uh, industrial um, revolution. So uh, we have uh, President Duque, as uh, Adrian already mentioned, uh, President Kagame, and we also have uh, Prime Minister um, Netanyahu with us. And looking uh, ahead, we know uh, that these technologies are going to play an incredible uh, um, important role in the transformation also of the economies and in a, a post-COVID um, world. Studies show that in the early days of the pandemic, the world leaped ahead five years in terms of digital uptake, accelerated these uh, technologies only uh, in two months. And looking ahead, um, for example, artificial uh, intelligence uh, is projected to increase global GDP by about 15% only in this decade. And for example, on 5G uh, is also expected to generate 13 trillion in global economic value and 22 million jobs by 2035. This really shows the potential. We know that technology is the key to this recovery and to resilience for tomorrow. But there are also challenges. Let's face it. Many industries were built uh, for an analog era and are struggling to play digital catch up. The technology divide, as we are seeing, you know, in the platform economy, the winner takes it all. Uh, it is also a risk that uh, technological divide will um, deepen and um, with close to half of the world's population still not connected to the internet, we really understand what is at stake. And the possibility of a splintered digital ecosystem is also growing, this decoupling uh, notion between uh, G2, uh, US and China. To unlock a sustainable future, we need the right policies and practices in place. And, this panel can address all this. Uh, let me uh, start with you, uh, President Duque. We have established uh, the Fourth Industrial Revolution Center in Colombia. We know that you are also focusing so much in your presidency uh, on this uh, digital, uh, being digitally connected. How do you see uh, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, these technologies, also the digital connection 
that uh, you will have to see also in Colombia uh, in the years to come. And welcome. Well, thank you so much, Gordy. It's a great pleasure to see you again. And let me express my gratitude to all the participants in this great uh, gathering. I want to express my, my salute to President Kagame, to Prime Minister Netanyahu, and um, to all the business leaders that are participating this morning. And um, let me begin by saying something that is quite interesting, Borgin. A week ago, the, uh, the OECD published the Digital Government Index, and Colombia appeared on the third place. So for us, it was a big recognition of all the efforts that we have been undertaking in the last 26 months since we arrived to power. But primarily because we decided that we want to make Colombia the Silicon Valley of Latin America. And the way we want to move forward is first with connectivity. So our goal is to have 70% of all the Colombian population with high-speed internet by the end of my administration in August 2022. The second thing that is happening is that we're training 100,000 programmers from now to August 2022 which is uh, the biggest push ever done in Latin America to train people with the capabilities and uh, with the knowledge to uh, participate actively in the fourth industrial revolution. Third, and it's also uh, very important in the, in the compromise for Colombia that we launched on the 20th of July, which is the equivalent of the Colombian New Deal, we included 17 digital transformation projects that are going to allow the citizens to have better services through the digital economy. So we're talking about a national cadaster, we're talking about uh, telemedicine, uh, education, we're talking about uh, the uh, citizen folder to access all the government services, we're talking about cybersecurity and improving our tax collection system. So it's a, it's a great group of projects that are going to bring to Colombia more than $700 million in terms of, of investment but they're going to generate a tremendous impact by generating employment and accelerating um, services in Colombia. Another thing that I want to highlight is that during the pandemic, we have been able to accelerate the provision of financial services. Last year, when the Inter-American Development Bank made the an analysis on all the countries in Latin America regarding the, um, financial inclusion, Colombia appeared in the first place. And we had been putting together a, a regulatory sandbox. We were working also in accelerating the access uh, to smartphones so that fintech could have a big boost. In fact, what we have seen in this year is that we have maybe made what we wanted to happen in a decade in just six months. So we have seen in this year the largest fintech penetration in Colombia and as of today, 85.5% of all the people that are above 18 years old have a financial product. And the interesting thing is that within the pandemic, since we started to accelerate all the fintech services, fintech is what's driving this change. And it's also important. We have also included the preparation of 20,000 small sites for uh, e-commerce for SMEs in Colombia, a big accelerator. And with the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in Medellin, and I'm here joined by Victor Munoz, who is the presidential advisor for economic uh, transformation and digital transformation, well, we are about, about to adopt 
is a framework so that AI, IoT, is um, robotics and um, in, in, in blockchain and uh, and web services applied to different sectors will be boosted in the next two years. So our big big bet is that with the fourth industrial revolution center and with all these policies, Colombia will be working very hard to meet the goal of being conceived as the Silicon Valley in Latin America and as a startup nation. Well, that's great news. And I saw also when you launched this Latin American Economic Outlook uh, 2020, you made the digital transformation a crucial part um, of this. But I'm also wondering, uh, in um, a digitalized economy and a platform economy, uh, it is a tendency, as I also mentioned at the outset, that the winner takes it all. How to make sure that these new technologies also can work uh, for um, the poor and those that don't have the right skills? How to make sure that we are not increasing inequalities with these new technologies? Uh, can they work in, in, I think in it's fighting a great poverty? Question. I think it's a great question, Borgi, because when, when I started my administration, and we launched the National Development Plan. The title that we that we gave to the plan is that this is it has to be a social pact, and and the pact is a pact to create equality. And we understand that with connectivity we build equality, and that's why what we have tried uh, to accelerate in this year is that ten thousand uh, small areas of the country will have high speed internet to expand the services for the poorest of the poor to the bottom of the pyramid. But also, since we have made the big bet to have 70% high-speed connectivity by 2022, with that, in terms of equality, what we want is to have financial inclusion, telemedicine, because in some uh, places of the profound Colombia, the access to a specialist is not that easy. Now with telemedicine, and now having all the medical records online, people will be more able to get to the experts to get a right diagnosis and also to be attended with the right uh, prescription. The third thing is all virtual education. Yes, the pandemic has affected us. And yes, we're working on an alternate uh, alternancy model to regain uh, presential classes. But also what we have made is a big acceleration so that kids from vulnerable families will have access to hardware and at the same time will have access to technology and will have access to platforms and web pages where they can download very important content and that also brings equality. The other thing has to do with e-commerce. We have had the largest acceleration of e-commerce in our recent history and it has happened within the pandemic and it has happened because we have pushed harder for, the, for, for the, 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 the sales force to be able to connect with the citizens through technology. That's also equality. And I also believe that in terms of the opportunities for job creation, it is incredible to see that the private sector is demanding a great set of skills and all the multinationals that invest in Colombia and digital transformation are looking for a great set of skills that we're trying to connect with what we call the double titling. So that kids that are graduating from high school will have on one hand their high school diploma, and in the other hand, they will have a degree as a technician so that they can start in the labor force 
And with one additional year with digital education, they will have a professional diploma. So this is also an acceleration of opportunities. And, and last but not least, Borgia, when we're thinking about poverty reduction in, in, the, in the moments that we're, that we're living, it's not just a matter of how do we reduce multidimensional poverty. It also has to be linked with reducing monetary poverty. And in order to achieve the goals that we have set, we know that in these times of pandemic, there's no way that we're going to achieve our goals if, without accelerating the, the uh, digital economy and the creative economy and the green economy. So we're trying to integrate the three elements and make this part of the transformation of what we call the Compromise for Colombia, which is a Colombian equivalent of the New Deal, so that we will invest more than $50 billion and generate more than 1.7 million um, jobs so that they can positively impact the aggregated demand of our nation. Thank you so much, Mr. President, and thank you for your leadership. I think this is uh, the best segue into uh, the next uh, speaker, uh, President Kagame of uh, Rwanda. Uh, you heard uh, President Duque also underlining that um, uh, it indeed can, um, we can use the technologies also uh, in giving opportunities uh, to young people that they don't have today. You have shown leadership uh, in many, many areas. We developed uh, the drones initiative based in Rwanda. We established our center also for the fourth industrial revolution there. How do you, Mr. President, um, see uh, the new technologies uh, being something that can work in the interest also of Rwanda and to accelerate uh, your development? Or are you afraid that the new technologies can work the opposite, that it, they are increasing the inequalities that we're seeing globally? Uh, Borje, one important element that I, that I want to put in the table for this discussion is that we also have to conceive the ethical debates. And that's why with the World Economic Forum and the Fourth Industrial Revolution Center in Colombia, we're working on the ethical framework for AI development in Colombia. We consider that if we also put the ethical debate uh, before the public opinion, it will create trust. So I want to say that. And going to your to, to the nitty-gritty of your of your question, I think the the best way that we can uh, motivate society to make the technological and digital change is to get people acknowledge that the debate about technology is not about hardware, it's not about software, it's not about antennas, it's not about cables. It's not about experts. It's about quality of life. If we keep on building on the positive side a digital society, that digital society will open opportunities to learn, opportunities to work, opportunities to take care of, of, of society with telemedicine. But at the same time, it will allow people that are in, in deep areas to be able to connect with the opportunities that are available in the work, in the working or the labor market. But also more importantly, we're talking about the quality of life in terms of protecting the, the people that are highly vulnerable, even to important diseases like COVID-19. If you have a digitalized economy, then the elder people will receive their pensions, will receive uh, their medicine, will receive attention without having to move from home and being at risk. 
but it's also quality of life when you see people that are going to have a better work and, and life balance since they're going to be able to work from home and be able to, to have their schedules in a more flexible way. And many companies have learned throughout this pandemic that even with all these restrictions of working from home and, and digital connection and digital meetings, people are being even more productive. And a lot of companies are seeing that maybe the cost that they carried for, for fixed assets has to be rethought. And I also consider that very important. And let me finish by this. Uh, when we talk about the rural areas, peasants, and people that are, that are planting a product to be able to sell them with technology, with the penetration and the support of the fourth industrial revolution, they will be able to place in the market their products and they will be able to pre-sale at a good price. So they're not going to be affected by the intermediaries. And I think that also is making a more fair economy when it comes to producers in rural areas in developing countries like Colombia. So I think the add of all this is that the fourth industrial revolution for us is part of the social transformation and is part of building opportunities that are everlasting for the Colombians. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much, uh, President uh, Duque. Let's now uh, move uh, to Africa, uh, to Rwanda, uh, to President uh, Kagame. We also have established a center for the fourth uh, industrial revolution uh, in your capital. Uh, we know that you have shown uh, leadership when it comes to drones, but also these new technologies, uh, Mr. President. I think uh, also based on what President Duke now said, I think we're all wondering how can we make sure that these new technologies, the digital transformation can also work in the favor of a developing country? How to make sure uh, that um, Rwanda uh, can leapfrog and use this uh, in the interest of its uh, young people? Mr. President, welcome, happy to see you. Very happy to join you, Borgi, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, happy to be with the uh, uh, President Ducky of Colombia and uh, my friend, uh, Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, the distinguished uh, participants uh, here with us today. Uh, over the past 20 years, um, Rwanda has uh, continued to private, uh, prioritize investment in technology, broadband and the digital skills. And we're aware that uh, it's going to succeed in the wider context of our continent, which uh, in many cases has been uh, left behind. Uh, if you look at uh, the global statistics, yet there are so many uh, problems that uh, technology can provide uh, uh, solutions for. And that's the reason we prioritized uh, investments in technology and uh, infrastructure that support that. Uh, and in fact, bringing together uh, Rwanda's quest for investment in technology and the needs uh, 
for that across our continent. That's why uh, we uh, came up with the, a broader plan for the continent so that we don't miss out on this. But in particular for Rwanda, uh, we have enjoyed the partnership with the technology companies. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the use of drones. Uh, we have had the opportunity to partner with the, the company Zipline uh, that uh, has invested with us with Rwanda uh, so that uh, we are able to use uh, drone aircraft to uh, deliver uh, services uh, for in the area of blood in the, the ministry of, uh, in the sector of health, uh, which has served to a great extent and has been very useful. We also have forged the partnership with the World Economic Forum, uh, which we are very happy to do and benefited from that partnership uh, where we have created uh, the center for the fourth industrial revolution here in Rwanda. Uh, as a, a proof of concept hub for the continent uh, to serve, serve Rwanda, serve uh, the whole continent as well. The partnership has not just been with the technology companies or with the, the World Economic Forum, uh, the partnership has extended to even uh, with the countries. Uh, we have uh, partnered with the, the country like uh, Israel, the Singapore, and these are advanced in many cases in this area, and we have benefited from this uh, partnership, which we hope to broaden and continue with other uh, countries. And um, the private sector has continually been brought in uh, to make sure that they bring in the necessary resources for the investments, but also the know-how through technology and the investments thereof. Um, so we, we, we really have uh, had this vision where not only do we develop these capacities within our, our own country, but also across the continent. Uh, and each continent has made, each country in our continent has made their own investments, but we bring them together uh, in a, a continental structure that has also been created uh, so that we are able to make a good progress uh, overall. So we, we, we have learned our own lessons, we have uh, made our investments and we have seen growth and progress uh, for our people, for our industries, but also across uh, the continent of Africa. And uh, we have seen young people uh, take up this uh, opportunity uh, and uh, they are involved deeply in uh, innovations and the uh, 
entrepreneurship that comes around that. So we, we, we are happy to be here and uh, hear from you and learn from you and participate with you. Thank you, Bogi. No, thank you so much for your kind words, Mr. President, and thank you for your uh, leadership. Uh, Rwanda um, being a developing country, but also being so proactive when it comes to uh, digitalization, you even have uh, a minister with that portfolio in, in your cabinet. But you also have been a champion of the Smart Africa Initiative that puts technology at the center of the whole continent's agenda, like a Pan-African approach. And uh, you underline that to leverage um, the young and aspiring population, investments in education and skills is critical. So how can Africa skill, reskill, and upskill its population? And what could also be the role of the private sector here in supporting this? Here I will say the Smart Africa Alliance, which we have created with the, uh, other countries on our continent, uh, brings together private sector and for private sector to play a central role uh, in this uh, partnership. And uh, government leaders uh, also participate. And our aim has been to harmonize the regulatory environment uh, across Africa so that uh, we, we know what to expect uh, with each other uh, and among ourselves. And uh, we're aware that technology uh, innovation is moving very fast. Uh, and this puts pressure on uh, regulators to find the right balance. And we don't want this to happen in one country or another and not uh, across so that uh, that helps even on how we work uh, together, especially in the context of the new continental free trade area, which we have uh, uh, created across Africa, which uh, by any measure seems to be the largest uh, uh, across the world. Uh, it is important uh, that systems be able to communicate with each other across our, our borders. Uh, most uh, children entering the primary uh, school today, we are aware uh, will work in jobs that um, don't yet exist. So the curriculum has to be flexible and future oriented in this case with the technology skills as a priority. So there is uh, prioritizing the investments, uh, not only in the infrastructure area uh, and the skills, but also how do we communicate across uh, our continent. And we continue therefore to build on that for deeper partnerships with the private sector. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the private sector, is very crucial uh, in creating jobs, in making sure that uh, they bring the necessary investments, uh, 
both in technology, but also in creating the jobs that are required for uh, our young people who uh, are in big numbers and looking forward, uh, it is going to keep growing. We also invest in technological, uh, not only innovations, but also in uh, technical and vocational uh, education, where uh, this needs to be more widely available, especially because of these numbers of young people. And if uh, it is going to be uh, demand-driven, uh, the results uh, will speak for themselves and uh, therefore the technical side of uh, uh, skills and, and education will be also very central. So it's a package of uh, oh, the partnerships across Africa, it's the partnerships by the private sectors and the private sector and the government, it's the uh, focusing uh, on the needs in terms of technical and technological uh, know-how and the necessity to give these skills to uh, the ever-growing uh, young population of our continent and therefore creating jobs and powering our economies uh, across Africa. Thank you so much, uh, President Kagama. And, uh, it has been a pleasure to collaborate with you and Rhonda also on the Fort Industrial uh, Revolution Center there. I'm uh, also now happy to uh, welcome uh, Prime Minister Benjamin uh, Netanyahu. Uh, good to see you there uh, from uh, Jerusalem. And uh, congratulations on your 71st birthday. We're so happy that you would like to spend that birthday with us. Well, who's counting these days? But thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you and my friends, uh, President Duque and President Kagame and all of you. Uh, I, uh, as my staff is moving around here, I'm actually in my office here in the Prime Minister's residence. I stopped uh, a coronavirus uh, cabinet, uh, which we're dealing with some of these questions that I'll address, uh, that you asked me to address. Uh, and so I'm, I regret that I'll have to go back there because we're in the midst of uh, these discussions on how to stem the tide. We have brought down the, uh, Israel is in a very high position of infections. We are now, I think, probably the lowest in Europe, but we were the highest in a few weeks, a few weeks ago. And we had to take a, a decision that was very tough on a general lockdown. Uh, and we did it. It's a very hard political decision to make. And it brought the numbers rapidly down. But the question now is, of course, uh, well, they'll climb back up because the virus is the virus is the virus. So one of the things we're considering involves education. What do we do with the schools? And how do we open them up? And the, the reason that's an acute question is not merely because of uh, the virus, but also because of the digital divide. Because if you don't want to open them up and you use e-learning, what about those who don't have e-learning? And uh, for example, that's prevalent in, uh, uh, in uh, the Orthodox community or in the Arab citizens of Israel. And so one of the things that we've decided to, to do just now, five minutes ago, is to allocate money to buy computers. 
for uh, these kids so that they have, so we can cross, first of all, the digital divide inside the country itself to give everyone the opportunity. And that's the first thing I'd like to uh, address since uh, these are the questions that were forwarded to me. How do we uh, at least reduce the digital device? One is infrastructure. It's computers, it's fibers, uh, fibers that, fast fiber that goes to some of these remote, more remote places in our country, even though we have a tiny country. We have central places where the 5G companies will go and other remote areas where they won't go because it's not profitable for them. So we are making sure, we're actually, uh, in order not to be held back, we told them, okay, we are reducing the universal requirements of uh, spreading fiber to everywhere, spread it to where it's profitable, which is most of the country. But those that are not there, what we're going to do is, is create a special fund so we can reach fiber. Uh, we can have fiber reach everyone. Fiber, computers, number one. It's simple. I mean, it sounds uh, simple. It's not, obviously, but it is actually conceptually simple. You have to make sure that the uh, physical wherewithal of uh, uh, the modern and uh, uh, the digital world reaches everyone. The second thing, and that enables us e-learning, uh, both in Corona and in the future. That's going to be, it's clearly where it's going. My son is a university student, and he's uh, he just told me that he finished his first day uh, in e-learning, and they've been doing e-learning for the last six months. And he says, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I should say this, but he says, uh, Daddy, it's better. <laughs> it's better in one sense because, you know, because they can get very, very good uh, teachers. So I think that's the way to go. You have to get the material, the physical infrastructure out there. So everybody, every uh, girl and boy, uh, you know, every teenager uh, and every university student can have these uh, capabilities. So we, uh, so we have that. The second thing uh, is we have a deliberate program to increase our technological uh, cadres. Okay, that means that, for example, the number of uh, IT first degree uh, students in our universities has increased by 70% in a few years. That's a deliberate strategy that we're doing because you'd say, well, wait a minute, but you're creating a digital divide because these guys are at the top. And what about those who are at the bottom? But they're pulling everyone else. And also they're providing, you're educating also educators. Uh, and so we are increasing, we're, we're constantly increasing the number of skilled, uh, you know, high-tech uh, workers per uh, capita. We have, uh, we're still the highest in the world, actually by far. Uh, the number of R&D that we spend per person is the highest in the world. Uh, and uh, we're continuing that because we don't see that as creating a digital divide. We see that as creating a digital world for, uh, for all our people and our economy. So we're definitely, second point after infrastructure is uh, uh, basically technological education. Uh, and that starts below, it starts at the bottom, but you really have to make sure that you have that uh, at the top. Don't, don't uh, forget the top. There's e-learning at the top, e-learning at the bottom, but there's gotta be high skill, very high skill at the top. Don't, don't lose out, don't try by, don't try to, uh, erase the divide by uh, lowering the top. You can raise the bottom, but don't lower the top. If you lower the top, you'll get nothing. Uh, so don't do that. That's the second thing that uh, 
we're doing. The third thing that uh, we're doing, which I think is important, is to reduce and adopt regulation. You know, we're our economies uh, and our educational systems, our social systems are geared to uh, to yesterday, and they're not even geared to the present. <clears throat> and we have to gear them towards tomorrow. So you have to deregulate. Regulation is a very, very big thing. I heard that Paul Kagame speak, for example, about drones. Uh, that's a very, that's a perfect example. Right now, we're, we've got uh, drone delivery uh, in the country. We're doing the pilot on this. We have uh, driverless car, deliver, uh, uh, driverless cars pilot, and we're going to change regulations to fit that. So that's the third area, and that applies to many, many areas. Three things then. Uh, physical infrastructure for the digital age, uh, preparation of, uh, of uh, personnel, uh, basically human resources, and third, uh, deregulation. I would say these are the three things that I can point to. The fourth is, uh, I would say, international cooperation. We've been cooperating with, uh, with uh, Africa, Latin America, uh, Australia, Singapore, uh, Britain, Australia. Uh, these are these cooperations are very valuable. I can tell you that there is a new cooperation and one that is giving enormous hope to everyone here, and that's with the Arab world. We have just signed uh, peace agreements um, with the uh, United Arab Emirates. We're signing peace agreements now with Bahrain. The first delegation, a formal delegation of ministers from uh, the UAE visited Israel yesterday, along with the American Secretary of Treasury, Mr. Mnuchin, and we signed agreements that are going to uh, uh, also share technology, uh, share uh, uh, technology also in uh, Corona and everything else. Uh, this is this is a very, very important thing. And I, I can tell you, I discussed with these ministers, how about Israeli-UAE cooperation in third countries, for example, in Africa, or for that matter, in Latin America, why not? I think this is uh, this is the fourth element that I've been forward, and I'm. Uh, I think the task is enormous. Uh, corona is an enormous challenge, but we'll we'll get behind it eventually. Uh, not eventually. I think soon we'll have vaccines. They'll be applied. Uh, we'll have to live with that uh, for probably a very long time. But I think the world has already changed. Um, the only question is how fast do we change to this changing world? And I. I believe knowing the people, uh, knowing uh, you uh, and the good effort that the World Economic Forum is putting forward, I think this is a challenge to which we're all up to. Uh, of course, the there is one other element, a fifth element that I mentioned that I think Israel excels in, and that's uh, cyber defense. I say cyber defense because the more we move into the digital world, the more we put out this infrastructure, the more we have the more we have a dependence on uh, these systems, the more we need to protect them. And I think that in this, this uh, regard, uh, Israel has forged um, important, important breakthroughs, and we share them also with, uh, with our friends. So these are the things that I think we can bring forward. And again, I wish I could stay more with you, but I, I have to go back to uh, dealing with uh, Corona. So... Thank you, and it's Thank good you. to see you all.
Thank you, uh, Mr. Prime Minister. If I may, just a, a short follow-up question before you uh, go back to your um, uh, cabinet. You know what uh, the three uh, head of states and governments here have in common, uh, President Duque, President Kagame, and you, Prime Minister, is that in both of these three countries, we have established uh, the Fourth Industrial Revolution Center of uh, the World Economic Forum. So you are already connected with the network and uh, since you mentioned also the UAE, that's the fourth country where we have now established uh, the center in Dubai for the fourth industrial revolution. So we already have a great ecosystem. Thank you for updating us also on the COVID situation. As you know, we're also in the second spike here in Europe, so you're not alone in Israel. But I think what I've seen uh, also from all the participants, the CEOs being part of this conversation is, of course, that they acknowledge that Israel is one of the most innovative countries in the world. But but how will you, Mr. Prime Minister, secure that you stay that way so there is no complacency? How will you also in the years to come be cutting edge? Is there part of that success you can uh, uh, tell uh, the rest of us? Invest, invest, invest. Just invest. Invest a lot. In, uh, invest in R&D. Invest, invest in, at the bottom and invest at the top. We... Uh, we have uh, an investment at the top that is a sunk cost because of our uh, our military expenditures. They're increasingly knowledge based, but uh, but we don't, and we therefore necessity forces us to constantly invest in uh, in information systems and cyber defense and so on. But I, I would say that uh, uh, our big challenge now is to invest in the bottom to make sure that we bring we lift the bottom. We're gonna the, the top will keep rising. I mean, that's just a fact. The top will rise, invest in the bottom. And uh, look, I, I, uh, I want to wish you uh, much success. I welcome this cooperation with the World Economic Forum and the opportunity to see my friends at a distance. Uh, but, uh, uh, but I do hope and believe and pray that we'll get beyond this, uh, this epidemic quickly. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it shows us how we're all connected in ways that uh, we may not have wanted, but we now realize uh, is there. We'll have to cooperate to secure our common future. I want to thank you all. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I, I'm seeing there is a lot of activity in the background there now, so your staff wants you back. And you're right, Mr. Prime Minister, that COVID uh, anywhere is COVID everywhere. Uh, we are now uh, a bit short on time, but I would love to go, and I mean one minute back to President um, uh, Duque and one minute back to President Kagame. Short comments on what uh, Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu said here. Let's go to um, uh, you, President uh, Duca, first, and then to President Kagama. And then I, I'll um, give uh, you the floor, uh, Adrian, to take the rest of the guests. So, um, Bogota, President Duca. Well, thank you so much, Borgia. I think uh, listening to President Kagami and to Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, good friends of Colombia and good friends of mine, and I send them uh, my best regards. I think they're, uh, they're very important reflections, and it's how um, all this digital world is uh, going to improve or affect the quality of democracy. Uh, because when we talk about cybersecurity, when we talk about uh, telemedicine, when we think about uh, financial inclusion, when we think about all the positive things that are derived 
from the digital the acceleration, uh, I think we all feel okay. But we also have to uh, recognize that in these days, we see the uh, post-truth and uh, we see fake news all over the place. And we see that due to the way that algorithms are being built in the case of social media, they can deepen the divisions inside society. And some of the demagogues and populists would like to take advantage of that to exacerbate uh, hatred and uh, also to exacerbate violence and many other forms of expressions that are not necessarily positive for democracy. So I think uh, as heads of state, we all have to analyze that in the times of post-truth that we're living, uh, we have to use technology to give the right message and that right message is how do we bridge the divides inside society? If we don't have tools to bridge the divide, this is going to be every day more polarized and it could affect the institutional systems and stability in many countries. So I think that discussion about the ethics and the uses of AI, the way the algorithms are built, the way that some people are induced to profound uh, their sentiments and not to be able to discern other ways of, of thinking are very important in this debate. And I consider that inside the World Economic Forum uh, um, conversation on the Great Reset, I think that Great Reset has to uh, have a chapter where we evaluate how do we strengthen our democracy with all the lessons that we have gathered from the digital area and how do we correct the things that at this time can become uh, a threat to the institutional stability of the world. I want to make that comment because I think we all have all referred on the economic, on healthcare, on a specific sector. We have all made comments on how this can improve investment and how this can accelerate transformation in, in different places of our countries. But I think the quality of democracy is something that has to be put on the table in, in the way we conceive the next stages of the fourth industrial revolution and especially if we're thinking on a great reset. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. President. Um, uh, last uh, short comment from uh, Kigali, from President uh, Kagama. Thank you, Borgi, once again. I, I want to start with just a, a, a small phrase which is commonly used and which I like, which is uh, lessons learned. Every time we learn lessons uh, from problems from uh, finding solutions and uh, but the more we learn lessons the more we seem to forget uh, forget to actually apply the very things we know that should be applied to for the present even for for the future uh, because we we know so much we discover so much uh, Every time we are short of uh, doing the very things we say we should be doing, which we know are beneficial to us. Uh, in fact, like investing in technology, investing in skills, investing in all kinds of things, innovation and so on. We, we know they have a huge multiplier effect on uh, the development of uh, societies, countries and so on. But at the same time, 
we some forget to, to, to make these necessary investments and do the exact things that we can do. Uh, at the same time, I, I think it has been said by my friend uh, Ducky and uh, also uh, Netanyahu, uh, who uh, talked about the dangers that sometimes come with these uh, new things that otherwise are beneficial. So not only should we invest for the benefits, but also invest to fight against the dangers that might uh, undermine uh, our developments. Uh, so in the cyberspace, uh, there is that room for making sure that as we invest in uh, new technologies and make advancements in that, we also uh, are aware of the dangers they come with and invest in making sure that we uh, build uh, in resilience for, for, for our systems and, and therefore to only benefit our people. So it's a great pleasure to be with you and to have been with you. Again, uh, all the best to you all and all the best to the president of Colombia, my friend, uh, President Doki, and also the Prime Minister of Israel, who has been a friend for a long time, and uh, yourself uh, for your good work, and we appreciate uh, you and uh, the colleagues who will be here also sharing with us uh, the best things you can move forward with. No, thank you so much for your kind words, President Kagame, and thank you for your leadership. I know uh, leave uh, the rest of the moderation in very able hands with you, uh, Adrian, maybe under a little bit uh, time pressure. Sorry about that. No problem. Um, look, I think it was fascinating to hear from three heads of government in very different uh, environments with very different backgrounds about their approaches to the fourth industrial revolution. But I want to turn very close to home now to Switzerland and also to a specific department of government, finance. Um, and normally when we think about the fourth industrial revolution in finance, we think about fintech and what we can do to advance uh, digital currencies and those kinds of innovations. But we have Daniela Stoffel with us, who's State Secretary for International Finance here in Switzerland. And Daniela, you, I think, have... Uh, a vision for using finance to tackle more ambitious uh, problems like climate change and biodiversity. Can you explain a little bit more about how that vision works? Yes, thank you very much. And thank you also for including Switzerland in this very interesting discussion. I don't mind so much the delay we've taken. It was a very, very interesting uh, discussion I was able to follow. And uh, before I come to exactly the point you just mentioned, I would like to maybe shed a light on what has been said by my very, by the very esteemed uh, persona that already took the floor. Um, what do you do as a, as a country like Switzerland and many others in the West that, uh, and the president of, of Colombia said, you know, we, we have sparked a, a social transformation. If you, um, if you have centuries, decades and centuries of building societies, of living by rules and uh, sort of amassing capital that is now um, being faced with that revolution we're all talking about, how do, you, how do you make that step into the future if you're neither pulled nor pushed yet you are a part of it and you see the huge potential that such a revolution. And I think we've only seen the dawn of that revolution um, if, if you realize what, what the potential is. 
you know, being Switzerland, um, you are sort of the epicenter of stability and tradition. And here is the new era and uh, questions of ethics and democracy and how societies work have been raised. And I think very much to the point, uh, we will see huge challenges coming our way in, in that area um, with regards to, to the uh, technological revolution. So what do you do? Um, we do what we always do and what we um, want to do. And it has been said by the, the prime minister of, of Israel, you take a whole lot of resources and you sort of throw it at the next generation. And in Switzerland, that means you use what you have in terms of stability, in terms of very clear rules, of uh, also wanting to comply with rules. You take your resources you have, the innovation, the productivity, the high productivity, the very skilled labor you have at your disposition, and you apply it to the problems at hand and combine them, also marry them sort of uh, with your values. And what are our values? The values of our society are very, very close to those of, uh, of the development goals. And we want to, and this is coming back to uh, the cues you gave me, um, we want to marry the, these two sides, the, the very innovative and, and very value-based sides of, of our economy and our society to, to that one goal. And we see huge potential. If, if you hear technology or, and sustainability, there, are common, there is common ground in the area of integrity, especially in also financial markets, but all markets in the area of transparency and in the area of stability. And all the technologies that have already been mentioned, um, be that blockchain, be that AI, be that um, uh, use of big data and so forth, all of these goals you can very much and very well use to achieve those goals. I'll give you a few examples, one of them being in risk management. Big data, AI and machine learning can enhance environmental risk management by screening of investments, benchmarking of green finance products, because those technologies can process vast amounts of data from multiple points and sources. So we want to go that way and uh, also uh, in the area of track uh, and check environmental data. Satellites, drones, we haven't spoken about those yet, uh, or remote sensing technology can help uh, track and monitor in real time uh, what is going on and we can support climate finance and nature-based solutions that way. And the third area where we see huge potential is the traceability of supply chains. Again, blockchain can play a huge role in collecting and tracking environmental data of suppliers and increase the efficiency of, for example, also trade financing processes. So thereby we want to sort of expand the, the reach also of Swiss financial intermediaries. And we've heard about intermediaries that might be excluded very soon from, from, that, uh, from that market and those activities. This is what we plan, I'll stop here. Daniela, thanks for that overview. And I think it's very encouraging for, for everyone listening to see that finance ministries are also thinking not just in the very narrow way about the impact of the fourth industrial revolution, but in a very wide and very dynamic way about how exactly that revolution is going to change people's lives and the way we do business. Uh, talking of business, I'm delighted that we have joined from Connecticut by James Laurie, who is the chief executive uh, and president of Stanley Black and Decker, um, who I can honestly say really are a household name. Uh, I can't think of many households that haven't uh, got one of your 
uh, accessories uh, lurking inside. And your company was just recognized for its contributions on ESG, which is sort of environmental social governance uh, roles. And, and really, you've played a huge part in kind of pushing those uh, UN uh, SDG goals into the way you do business. But but James, I want to refer to something that all of our uh, political um, guests really hinted at, which is the big fear people have about the fourth industrial revolution relating to their jobs. Their concern is that there will be casualties of this revolution and that the, the idea of a reset is really about uh, resetting them out of the workforce and replacing them with robots or replacing them with cheaper labor. How does a company like Black & Decker with that very, Stanley Black & Decker with that very strong sort of ethical core, how do you deal with that fear and, and how are you tackling that human dimension to this revolution? Thank you, Adrian. What a great question. Um, first of all, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all our participants. The fourth industrial Revo revolution had been slowly wending its way into uh, global supply chains, you know, during the four years since uh, Klaus Schwab published his uh, work on the topic in January of 2016. And while technologies such as IoT, advanced analytics, robotics, cobotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, augmented reality, and others have all been advancing with lightning speed and ever increasing speed, so many well-capitalized corporations um, have been toying with these technologies, conducting experiments and pilots and so on in various parts of their supply chains. However, the adaptation uh, at scale of these incredibly powerful technologies has been frustratingly slow you know, to us uh, running uh, companies in general. And today it's estimated that uh, less than 10% of the world's companies currently employ these technologies in their supply chains at scale. And then, Earlier this year, the Great Reset came along. COVID-19 struck, all of a sudden, the revolution, the digital revolution accelerated, the potential transformation of business models by multiple years, just in a matter of months. And without intervention, it's clear that countries, industries, companies, and people in general, with the requisite resources and skills to participate, they will emerge as the big winners and the gaps will only widen for those that are under-resourced or under-skilled. And we can't let this happen. We've been uh, in business for 177 years. We have a purpose for those who, we are for those who make the world. Uh, that means we are for the makers and the shapers and the people who get things done on the ground to keep the world moving forward every day. We're the world's largest tool company. We have leading businesses in commercial security, industrial products. But when I became CEO in 2016, I had a pretty good sense that things were changing dramatically as it relates to the social impact and the uh, advance of technology. So I laid out three priorities for the company at that point in time. The first one was to continue our track record of growth and, and excellent financial performance that we had amassed over the previous uh, two decades. Secondly, to become known as one of the world's great innovative companies. And third, to elevate our commitment to corporate social responsibility. We set out to celebrate diversity and inclusion and accepted the fact that corporations need to create positive social impact. 
beyond profits to retain their license to operate in the modern world and promote a healthy form of stakeholder capitalism. In 2016, we also began a journey to implement Industry 4.0, or the fourth industrial revolution in our 100 plus manufacturing facilities around the globe, as well as in the rest of our supply chain. As a result, with all that hard work, we've emerged as one of the global leaders in discrete advanced manufacturing. And we've learned a lot along the way. So I'm gonna share a few insights, uh, if you'll allow me. Please First, please. the challenges of implementing, simply implementing Industry 4.0 in one plant are daunting. Uh, it takes a village, it takes an ecosystem. We've, we have a, amassed an ecosystem of just under 20 partners, including Cisco, Microsoft, Rockwell Automation, as well as numerous tech companies and startups. And each partner has a specific role in the implementation. And we put it all together in a really integrated fashion. The second thing is that the fuel that powers this ecosystem is data. And for an integrated global supply chain to exist, there are many data challenges. Uh, with the most significant being overcoming the obstacles of data sharing uh, and also especially those involving ownership of data and cybersecurity and privacy. And we really need intervention by governments and partnerships with business and to, to uh, overcome those obstacles. And finally, there's this monumental challenge of upskilling, reskilling, and keeping the skills current of literally tens of thousands of people in our company and hundreds of millions of affected supply chain workers in greater society. And that requires common credentialing systems, enabling the mobility of labor, the skilling and credentialing issue is one that can only be solved through public-private partnerships, which would include governments, academic institutions, and corporations. We've already seen examples here in the US of success in this regard. The Greater Washington Project is one that I would note. And we, uh, as a company, are working in our home base of Connecticut uh, on the very same type of a, of, of a project with the Business Higher Education Forum, which is an NGO that has spawned several of these successful partnerships, including the Greater Washington Partnership. So at, at Stanley Black & Decker, we're taking, we're accepting the responsibility, we're taking the learnings from our Industry 4.0 compiled over the last four years and doing whatever we can to make a difference to ensure that the social impact from this fourth industrial revolution will be a positive one. James, thank you for that. And I want to pick up on something um, you mentioned, uh, which was the importance of data sharing in kind of advancing some of the collaborations that you've undertaken uh, in the course of transforming the business. Um, we have two guests who can, I hope, uh, shed more light on that. Um, we have um, uh, Marietta Shaka from Stanford University and Nadaf Zafrir from uh, Team 8. Um, maybe Nadaf, um, just starting with you, Team 8 invests in a lot of the businesses that are players in this new world of data sharing and also cyber defense, which was something that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu raised as being another crucial element in, in this revolution. What are your uh, insights from your position as an investor into how, uh, how far we've got the balance right between uh, enabling some of this data sharing that's necessary for these kinds of collaborations to work, especially in a time when we can't meet physically and also meeting some of the needs that citizens feel they have in terms of privacy, in terms of security, in terms of building safe places where we can have that sharing. 
Yeah, thank you. And, uh, uh, and thanks for uh, having me. You know, the silver lining during this coronavirus, I think, is that in the last two decades, the digital infrastructure that we have invested in massively has proven more resilient than we anticipated. You know, the fact that we're gathering now, e-learning, e-commerce, that has kept the lights on, and, and that is the silver lining. However, the opportunity is vastly larger than we are able to actually leverage right now. And the reason is that we don't have the confidence, enough confidence in our digital infrastructure systems, which leads to not enough trust, which leads to uh, uh, the fact that we are not actually leveraging all the potential that we have in this digital economy. And I'll give you three reasons and examples. Mm -hmm. Number one, we can't see enough. We have black boxes, especially in OT. James just spoke about that in our production sites. Uh, number two, we have a problem in collaborating and between different entities, if one has the data, the other has the models and machine learning and the AI, it's extremely difficult to create that meeting in order to actually get value out of the data and the models. And, uh, and thirdly, leaders find it hard to quantify the risk. And business leaders that cannot quantify the risk are going to stay behind. <clears throat> and so if I jump into all these three and just give you a, a little bit of a, 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 an in-depth uh, uh, understanding of what I'm talking about, think about OT. If we, when you think about the OT environment, these are environments, the SCADA systems that actually run the world, the, the computers that run the real machines in the world were designed in a different era um, they, were they were designed to be isolated. They have proprietary languages. Um, they're, the way that they're protected is that they're isolated. Now, if we want to harness data, run machine learnings, and for example, get much more efficient and effective by predictive maintenance, we now have to connect OT environments to very modern IT environments, and that convergence create uh, extreme fragility because we don't have extreme visibility. Um, these legacy environments are naive, they're, they're not protected, and they have to be connected only after we can actually unveil what's going on under the hood. So we cannot accept a world where OT is a black box. We need to take these technologies, we need to modernize them, we need to create extreme visibility so we can connect them and harness the effectiveness that uh, they may provide us. Another topic which is extremely important is to quantify the risk in a business language. You know, leaders like James and others uh, uh, are, you know, have been trained to assess risk and create the right balance between the, the, according to the risk appetite of their companies. However, in cyber, because this is such a technical issue, we are presenting the risk to decision makers, usually in a very technical way. We have to learn how to demystify cybersecurity, create a language that lead, the business leaders can understand so that they can embrace the risk and go forward. And then lastly, collaboration. We are not going to get the value that we can from harnessing the data, and Daniela spoke about that, 
if we can't actually create a safe environment to share data, models, and AI. And again, here as technologists, and we're investing in these technologies, we need to find privacy-enhancing technologies that will enable different parties, governments, peoples, enterprise, et cetera, to share data without necessarily having to get that extreme trust. Specifically, we're working on technologies such as homomorphic encryptions that go beyond trust and will enable individuals and companies and countries to share data, get the value without having to invest tremendously before they do that. Nadaf, thanks for that. And you mentioned there the training that leaders have in identifying risks, especially when it comes to things like data and, and uh, cybersecurity. But as citizens, we don't have that kind of training. And uh, Marietta, I want to bring you in from Stanford University. What, when we talk about the fourth industrial revolution, how do we prepare everyday citizens, people like us, to cope with the kinds of risks and have the kind of awareness to actually navigate this world? Because we've talked about how hard it is for businesses, how hard it is for governments, but for the ordinary citizen, the ordinary individual, how do we help them to not feel that they're at sea in a world where they have not got the equipment to kind of navigate? Thank you very much. And it's, it's a pleasure to uh, reflect after all the interesting interventions that uh, were already shared. Uh, I want to shift focus a little bit on the agency of the individual, indeed, because I think it's tempting to look with a lot of hope towards what benefits technology can bring. But revolutions, and I'm afraid that the fourth industrial revolution is not an exception, are always about shifts in power and governance. So I would like to expand the focus a little bit from just an industrial revolution to also looking at the societal, political and technological revolutions that together are acting like a layer impacting at this point, all aspects of people's lives. So if we want to focus on building trust, we have to address questions of legitimacy. Uh, so for example, who can make decisions, set standards, govern over so many aspects of people's lives uh, on behalf of people. And I think that without deliberate safeguards to strengthen the public interest, to protect people's rights and freedoms, uh, we have to acknowledge that technologies and business models and data can also become tools for repression and exclusion. Um, I was very much uh, inspired by the words of President Duque about the need to focus on people's quality of life, but also on democracy. And here it seems that some of us in countries where we've enjoyed democracy the longest risk forgetting the need to defend it uh, and to actually deliberately govern for the better outcomes. Uh, since I've started working in Silicon Valley, I've seen the extraordinary inequality and the divisions between people who benefit, which are a handful, and those who pay the price for you know, the gig economy and uh, the big share prices of tech companies. So I think we see quite a few tensions and growing tensions between the public and the private sector. And this goes far beyond social media platforms and the more visible effects of privatized rules and standard setting. Um, so I believe we need much more of an all of society debate about governance by whom on the basis of which values and how benefits, but also risks are distributed. I see that too often profits stay with companies and COVID has exacerbated this, but the price of risk and, and damage and harms is for society. Uh, we need a discussion, for example, about how to finance healthcare, education, and other public goods 
if companies don't contribute to it through taxation. So um, I believe that it's important to actually deliberately design and govern for inclusiveness, agency of individuals, transparency and accountability. And those latter two, transparency and accountability, are, are quite often missing. It is really hard for individual citizens, but also lawmakers, journalists, civil society, academics, to have a good view of what the actual impact of some of the latest technologies is, because they don't have meaningful access to information. So I think that that's an area to focus on, which would help better inform the general public, um, and also have more evidence-based policies, which I think is a tension we often see. Companies feel like politicians do not put forward relevant or you know, um, accurate proposals to regulate while politicians don't have the proper access to information to actually be on top of the latest technological developments. So um, one thing I, I think is important is that for the fourth industrial revolution to lead to improvements in the lives of people, not just a few of them, the social and political and technological revolutions need to be factored in and all of them need to be governed for on the basis of values um, and clear outcomes. And from my end, that would be to strengthen democratic principles. Maya, thank you for that. And also thank you for um, referencing back to uh, the Colombian president. And also I think points powerfully brought up by uh, Daniela Stoffel uh, from here in Switzerland. Um, I want to end today's discussion, if I can, with Jason Kelly from uh, Ginkgo Bioworks, uh, because one aspect of the fourth industrial revolution that's perhaps novel, that hasn't been something that we've ever encountered before, is a new type of technology, which is biotechnology. And uh, Ginkgo Bioworks is, is a company that uh, is developing some of the kind of procedures and processes that re really probably underpin that uh, that industry as it moves forward. But also, uh, Jason, it's an industry that's really been put in the spotlight by, by COVID um, and by people's expectation that suddenly you can perhaps magically step forward and provide solutions that weren't there previously uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. How has this uh, crisis kind of impacted what is a very early stage industry like the one you're involved in? And what do you see as the kind of signs of, uh, of hope uh, for the industry going forward as we emerge, fingers crossed, from the current difficult state? Yeah, I think it's an amazing moment, actually, and an important point for the fourth industrial revolution to look at synthetic biology, which for folks that don't know it, uh, it's essentially programming cells like we program computers. And the reason that's possible is because inside of a cell is digital code in the form of DNA, right? It's A, T, Cs, and Gs, not zeros and ones. But we can read it with DNA sequencing or genomics and write it with DNA printing or DNA synthesis, which, which literally means go on the computer, type ATCGG, hit print, and out in this lab behind me would come a piece of DNA that was the, the code you asked for. Uh, and Ginkgo's responsible for about 25% of the DNA that gets printed worldwide is designed by us. And, and so what do, you, what do people use this for? Well, you might've heard of the uh, RNA vaccine from Moderna. So this was the very first vaccine to enter clinical trials here in the US in, in just 45 days from getting the sequence of the virus to a vaccine. Uh, candidates. Well, what that is, is it's a, it's a piece of genetic code that's delivered as a vaccine to a patient's cells. It goes into their cells. The cells read that code and express certain parts of the virus to trigger the immune system. It's a, it's a whole new way to do vaccines that uses DNA writing as a key tool. 
DNA reading, Ginkgo received a, a large grant from the National Institutes of Health here in the US to greatly lower the cost of testing uh, that we're deploying here in the US and also uh, ideally would deploy internationally for COVID-19 to reduce uh, spread in areas that have outbreaks. Th those are two uses of co uh, during COVID for reading and writing DNA as an example. Uh, I, I think though COVID opens up this interesting moment, which is, you know, I think uh, um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said this well, this is a, a global scale crisis. And one of the things that strikes me is, you know, where are our, our big technology companies, the uh, Googles, the Apples, the Microsofts in helping us get out of this? You know, what are they doing? You know, and the answer is roughly nothing, right? And, and, and it's not their fault. I mean, I'm sure they'd love to, but fundamentally that, you know, the technologies of AI and, and compute they don't solve this problem, right? It's a physical problem, you know, and, and President Netanyahu also said, it's showing we're all connected, right? And, and what connects us is biology, right? Like we're, we're seeing that our human health, our public health is connected cross borders. Well, we also all use the same biology to make our food. We share an atmosphere that's produced every year by the plants on this planet. It's manufactured by biology. Synthetic biology is allowing us to program that technology and it's exponentially improving. It'll be the most important technology of the next 50 years. And I think COVID's making that evident. Uh, and I think it's a key part of the, of the fourth industrial revolution. Jason, thank you so much. Uh, one of the things technology allows us to do is to run over time, which we've done today. Um, we've uh, had a fantastic array of panelists and we've really been able to touch on a whole bunch of interesting things, but we want you to stay with us. If you're on top link, Come and join in the conversation with our experts and commentators um, and get your point uh, across. I want to thank everyone who's come on today's call. I think it's been a really rich, fascinating discussion. It shows you some of the incredible uh, diversity of both applications, impacts, and effects of this revolution. And uh, there's going to be a lot more discussion with everyone on this topic coming up on TopLink. So to everyone who's joined, to all of our guests and panelists, to my colleague here in the studio, Burger Brenda, to all of you, thank you for joining us and see you for the next Great Reset Dialogue in November. Thank you very much from Geneva. Thank you.